Bob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, we have another live Q&A session, and I welcome Fred Schenkelberg, the owner of AscendoReliability.com, and Andre Ferrari, the senior reliability engineer from Enbridge Pipelines, to the show. We talk about reliability math. We talk about mean time between failures or MTBF. We talk about Weibull analysis and both guests share their top reliability math tips. If you haven't yet, go to robsreliability.com and sign up for the weekly reliability newsletter with bonus content. I put out a new blog every Monday morning with content that you'll only find there. So check that out. Also, please subscribe to the podcast and tell your colleagues about the podcast. I've seen the numbers start to tick back up since most of you are returning to work. So I like to see that. So keep sharing the show. I'd love to keep growing it and keep bringing great information to you. And lastly, if there are any questions that you have, if there are any guests that you'd like to see on the show or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, send me an email, robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate each and every one of you. And here's the interview with Fred Schenkelberg and Andre Ferrari. So welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. This week we're on, I believe this is webinar 13 for me as part of the live webinar series. So this is pretty fun. We got two special guests today. Filling up the screen for us is Fred Schenkelberg from Ascendo Reliability. Fred, how are you? Hey, pretty good, Rob. Thanks again for the invitation. Well, it's always great to have you on. I think this has got to be at least five or six times. So it's always (laughs) fun to have you on, Fred. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here. And, and another special guest, one of my colleagues from Enbridge, uh, senior reliability specialist, Andre Ferrari. Andre, how are you? I'm, I'm good. I just miss shaking your hands every day. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. We can't do that anymore. Next time it'll be the elbow bump or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the, right. the Vulcan salute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to have you guys on today, you know, because we've talked a lot about reliability math. And I know a lot of people have, I mean, they've had a lot of questions. I've gotten a lot of questions about reliability math over at least the short time that I've done this podcast. And I guess to start off, Andre, I know we've talked a lot and we've done a lot of work lately on, you know, finding these MTBFs or finding these Weibull, you know, doing these Weibull distributions. Now, do you want to just kick us off with some of the things that we've been doing lately with respect to operating versus just total time. Yeah, this is uh, something that uh, because we work in an industry where there's moving equipment, mainly pumps and uh, cars and valves and stuff like that. So all those things age over time, but uh, the key is to understand what's, what is causing those systems to age? What is the aging variable that uh, is causing the system to degrade over time? So then we can manage this degradation uh, and uh, have some plans for it and mitigate the impact because we don't want bad things to happen. We want to know as reasonably as possible when they're going to happen. So uh, we use variables to build those life distributions that tell us how something is going to evolve over its life. So they use variables like uh, typically we use time to failure, right? Uh, so what is the runtime to failure? But runtime to failure can be the time element can be calendar time, or it can be actually the actual time that the element or the the system you're studying actually run because some of the time it stays idle and some of the time it runs and common sense common sense is that when it's run when it runs it's aging when you're using it when you're stressing it out when you're putting energy through it and uh, making it work it ages but when it's idle it might not age as much so 
we need to be clear on those variables that make our system age. So for example, a car, right? You, you buy a car, it, it, there's actually a calendar time where your car is sitting there driving and all those things. But when you want to look at the aging characteristics of your car and build uh, some knowledge about how it ages, you need to look at more specific variables like, uh, you know, the odometer, how much time it actually ran. Or you can be even more creative. You, if you think that every time you start your car, <clears throat> um, uh, yeah, you, you're putting a stress on it, so you could look at the cycle time to failure, the on-off time to failure, the time, every time you ride your car. So we need, that's what we, we do in our job, Rob, where we look at those variables and we try and find the, the, the right variable that gives us indication of aging. Not always easy, not always easy, because to get a, a reading, you need to measure it. And sometimes we don't measure stuff, right? And we've run into problems like that. <laughs> Data is always a huge problem. Yeah. Now, Fred, you, you know, like this, obviously, you, you know, you, you like to talk a little bit about MTBF. And it's a question I got recently. I was a few weeks ago in a different webinar was basically around how do I calculate MTBF? You want to just give an introduction, maybe first, like what is MTBF? And then how do we actually calculate it? Well, I could go a lot of different ways with this answer, Rob, so <laughs> I'm going to try to contain myself. Uh, first off, MTBF, in my opinion, is the our profession's worst four-letter acronym. It's, <laughs> it's probably the worst acronym at all that we ever used. The The issue is, is that it, it doesn't contain very much information. It contains the mean of that distribution. And Andre, you were talking about, you know, time to failure and figuring out, you know, when do we defines the starter time, what counts as operating time or calendar time. I always look back, I'm going to jump back to your answer a little bit, Andre, is that I always look at, well, what's the failure mechanism? Use your car analogy. The, there's some parts of my vehicle that age and wear or have the opportunity to fail, like when I start the car, right? But the paint job, it's exposed to the elements 24-7. And it doesn't matter where it's running or not, right? It's more about preventative maintenance and care and all that kind of stuff. So that you have to tie your measures and metrics to what it is, the underlying mechanisms that you're interested in exploring. And sometimes we do it at a system level just to get indications of where do we need to look next. You get some concepts of that. So MTBF has been a long time and MTTF and MTBUR, uh, MTXYZ. I had a, a, a student once that worked in the military hand me a, a joint forces uh, document that had over 600 variations of MT something. And many of them were exact same acronyms and same exact words, but different definitions from the different branches of the military. And so it was a, the, you know, the Rosetta Stone for MT stuff. That in lies one of the biggest problems is that it's, it's so commonly used, it's so commonly taught, it's so prevalent, and it's so misunderstood. And so, and then on top of it, mathematically, it's lacking a lot of information. It's easy. We could do it with a mechanical adder in the 60s. And that lack of technology of what we've got on our watches and phones right now and computers doesn't, it, it, we should be doing distributions. If we got the Weibull parameters, we could put up a little app on our phone or a quick spreadsheet and we could solve it for whatever percentile we're interested in. And we could detect whether the hazard rate is increasing or decreasing. But if I only get MTBF, if I take the total number of operating hours or whatever time frame I'm interested in, cycles or whatever, and divide it by number of failures, I'd lose the information that's contained in that time to failure information as to is it an infant mortality issue, does a wear out issue, is it what's going on and what's changing? You, you just mask all of that stuff. And then if somebody gives you MTTF or a fit or a, fit, a failure rate in terms of say failures in time or an MTBF value, you lost all of that information that was in the original data. Of other than there's a point estimate. And so part of this question is, you know, what is it? Well, it's a average. And it, you can use, the issue I have is, let's say you're looking at pumps, you know, in Enbridge, your pumps and valves and all kinds of cool stuff. 
and you go out and you collect all the times that these valves are in service and you count the number of failures, you can calculate MTBF. It's just a simple ratio. It's an inverse of a failure rate, right? There's nothing fancy about that. But let's say all of your valves uh, are showing a, a, a wear out mechanism, right? Or, or in, over time, you're noticing that you're getting more and more showing up every day. If you're only measuring MTBF, what I've seen clients do is they'll actually plot those MTBF calculations and watch for the trend in the MTBF, whether it's increasing or decreasing or whatever. I said, why are you doing that? Just do a Weibull <laughs> plot. Just do a, you know, a non-parametric plot of this data or something rather than masking it. And if you, you can do a simple simulation with some of your own data and say, what if I track it with MTBF versus track it with a, just a graphical or a Weibull? How long before I would notice the issue? Right? If, I, if I have this increasing rate of failures and I want to have a system in place to detect that, let's just simulate a couple different ways to measure it and you'll find that the MTBF value is, is atrocious every time. Now let's say two, 3% of your valves have infant mortality, right? They fail within the first six months of the first year of use, but this is a small proportion of the overall group. We typically call that infant mortality, right? And so those things work out of the system and, or you go solve those so you don't have that percentage in the group anymore, your MTBF value will actually get smaller because you're skewing the curve. Its slope now changes. The underlying distribution is shifting and the, the, it's pivoting on the 63rd percentile, right? So it'll actually look like it's getting worse. And, and it's not. You're actually improving something, <laughs> but you're improving the infant mortality. But you have this contrary metric that's telling you it's getting worse. And so that's just one of many, many ways that it can mislead you. And um, when, when is it useful? Never. <laughs> just don't use it. Don't use it at all. If anybody asks you for it, tell them to give you something useful. If somebody wants MTBF for a unit, so ask them what do they really want. And they probably want something closer to that distribution or time to failure information or when do I expect to have you know, five fail out of this lot whatever. So I'm going to put up a link to this webinar I did recently that was on exactly this question is uh, when, what do I do about MTBF use? So let me see if I can get enter here and we'll go out to you. But I spent a whole hour on this answer. So I just, and, and, and you know, Bob, I could spend about six hours on this real easy. <laughs> you kept it short for us with just like a good try. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm really trying. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's something that, you know, like a lot of people like, like, that's part of, to be honest, that's part of reliability engineering, which is something that we get a lot, which is people ask us questions, and they ask the question with the context that they have or the knowledge that they have. And it's really about interpreting their question to give them what they need. Right. And it's not unique to reliability and MTBF use. It's, you know, be oftentimes the first question is, well, what is it, you know, if you dig into it a little more, you learn about what is really the problem and what do they really need to understand? You know, this fails too much. Well, what do you mean it fails? And, and it might be something we hadn't thought of. It, it just gives us a, a, a variant in the screen or it doesn't respond fast enough or it's their perception of how they define failure. And if they just say it fails too much and we go back to the drawing board and do the things we think is the problem or we solve the problems we think is involved without really understanding what the nature of the issue is, we miss opportunities and we solve the wrong problems. And, and the measures and metrics we use, the math we use, is just a tool for us to understand what's going on. And it's, it's not magic. And part of this is that you know, your next question, I, I'm gonna jump ahead of you a little bit, is this MTBF of a human being. Um, Years and years ago, I worked at Hewlett Packard and Carly Fiorona was the CEO and was at a, a, a big conference and somebody asked her how good HP products are. And she goes, they're as reliable as the sun and the moon. Like, okay, <laughs> that's poetic, but it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I don't think our product's going to last 4 billion years, <laughs> you know, and, but her intent was, is that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. You know, and we know it to the millisecond when it's going to crash the particular horizon, right? It's, you can count on it. It's, it's trustworthy, which is the common vernacular of reliability. 
and the issue is, is that we walk around in the reliability world, we think people are talking our language, it's a probability of success over a duration with certain functions in an environment. Most people don't think of it that way. They think of it as I go to my car, it starts, it's reliable. No, that's availability. It was in service and ready to operate when you wanted it to. Did it get to the grocery store and back successfully? That's reliability for that mission, right? But we split the hairs that way. And it's something prudent to keep in mind is that as you, as people talk about reliability, what is it they really mean? And then we translate it into the engineering terms. Uh, but on, on this next question is what's the MTBF of a human being? You know, I don't really care. It's not a meaningful figure. Um, you know, if I have an infinite ICU unit, knowing that that child has an MTBF of 40,000 doesn't help me make any rational decisions. If, the, if my mother-in-law happens to be 87, what's her MTBF? It, so it's not conditional in any way. If I say you have this constant MTBF hazard rate over your lifetime, that's irrelevant to an infant or a, a, a senior. So, it, and, and um, uh, Adam Barrett wrote an interesting article on exactly that title. So maybe this question came from that article. But the, maybe, I mean, I mean, we all know, like, like, I think the average, what is it, the average life expectancy is like 80, 81, something like that. And it's like, yeah. you're right though. Like, it's like, does that mean, I mean, it means people will go over and people will be under, but it just, it doesn't give you enough context to understand. Or even is failure death or is it like ending up Lots in the of, hospital like it depends what functional failure is that's right that's right and it goes it definitely goes into the, the equations i have so a just, simple imagery about mtbf it's you know we all talk about the bathtub curve which is three wavelength distribution so you have this infant mortality the random elements and then the aging part mtbf is squishing the bathtub curve into one point in time so as Frank uh, said, uh, you're losing so much information along the way, and that's why uh, you know it's 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 a it's a kind of a an oxymoron to kind of use it to make decisions on it. Sometimes we can use it maybe as a reference point. You might use it. So you're looking at two two uh, bearings, for example. You say one has, a, you know, in, this guy said, oh, this one has a high MTBF, and this other one. It's a reference point. So it's the job of the reliability engineer then to go study, to delve into the data and see, you know, you know what's, what is the data telling me? What, is, what more information can I get out of the data for the two different bearings so I can serve your question better and help right. you make a better decision? Yeah. Bearings is a great example because it's, it's classic wear out mechanism, right? Our grease starts to fail and then we lose the ability to start up spinning, right? It, or it, uh, the bearings wear out, right? We have this classic wear out component. And so I was working with a bearing manufacturer once and I asked them how do they measure reliability and what do their customers complain about? And most of the time it was manufacturing variability where the inner, inner diameters were wrong and so they couldn't, mount that you can assemble the units with these bearings and i and they said well that's a quality issue so we don't count those yeah. uh, okay that's fair some <laughs> companies do that that's fine but it's got to your customer and it's not working i call that reliability because it costs you money that so we agreed to disagree on that one and then i said well what do you do with customers that's that complain that it wears out oh we ignore those too because that's wear out and we're only reporting mtbf only the flat part of the curve so anything that fails outside of the flat part of the curve, we ignore, and that's, that gives us the MTBF value. Okay, well, that's informative. Your MTBF value is actually pretty meaningless, right? And then, yeah. well, what do you want me to do? Take the average of the whole thing, which would increase, you know, it would make the MTBF value a little lower. It would include more failures in the overall calculation. I says, well, that's better, but why don't you tell me what the rate what percentage of your units have this infant mortality problem and how that affects the, the production and scrap and all those things I worry about when I'm ordering units to install them. And then what's my onset of wear out? When do I expect to see 5% fail? When do I expect to see 15% fail? So that I can 
order spares appropriately and set this up appropriately. What? You have all this information. Why don't you just provide that? Oh, nobody ever asked for that. <laughs> I just did. <laughs> you know? I know I ask for it because I ask Andre for it. So. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Andre. So we just got a question in the chat from Mike, and and uh, I guess we'll we'll Andre. We'll start off with you. So he's asking for. Do you have any good examples of a bad way to use MTBF? There are some I use to explain the pointlessness of it, but most people don't understand constant hazard rate. So do you have any like examples of, I mean, I, I, to be honest, Mike, f to answer this question, like I always like to use just like what Fred used is, is basically like using people and their health. And so like, like just how Fred broke it down in terms of if you're in an ICU with a baby, you know, just cause you are supposed to live till 81 doesn't mean you will. Um, but maybe Andre, do you have any like practical examples you could walk us through? So of using, uh, of not using MTBF, right? Well, just how would you explain to someone that MTBF is not a good way to do, uh, to do things? Well, I would assume I wouldn't, uh, first of all, I, I would use the analogy, just some education here, use the analogy that you bringing a lifetime, let's say the lifetime is 50 years into one point in time. You definitely have a problem here, right? So you, you're making a decision or a judgment on 50 years of data uh, on, on one point in time. So we have a problem here. And secondly, it's if he got this MTBF, the way I would approach it, if he has the MTBF, he must have calculated from somewhere. And henceforth, if he has calculated is he must have data and if he has data he can give it to a reasonable reliability engineer and, and they can do the calculations for him all is in the education of as frank alluded to is trying to understand why the customer wants to find the mtbf what is his motivation does he want to know how many spares he needs to stock on the shelf does he want to know um how many failures he'll have, how much money he should put aside for this asset to run this asset, et cetera, et cetera. So understanding this and then putting what I just said together that the person who has the MTBF has had some data uh, gathered so I can take this data and answer his question in a more pragmatic way. Now, if he got his MTBF from a vendor, let's say uh, somebody is selling him a pump and he got this number from a, um, uh, pump manufacturer, then it's more problematic because he's running with a number that he got from somebody else. And uh, there's two ways around that. You ask the vendor to give you the data, which never will never happen. So you can do your own calculations or you wait 50 years to get data yourself. So that's where it becomes a little bit tricky. Um, it, there's creative solutions around that where you can say, well, this pump looks at the other pump I studied there can we use the analogy to make inferences for yourself? So just to summarize, I would educate him why he needs to move away from MDBF and try and work a way to use the data which is available to answer his question. Because one thing I like, the beauty about reliability engineering and reliability engineering studies, there's so many uh, results you get from it. And uh, I always say that when you do a study on an asset, you get one result for one customer, another result for another customer, another result for a customer. And that's the beauty of studying the life cycle of an asset. Yeah, and to expand on that, I mean, the, back to these, I was working years and years ago with this fan manufacturer. They made cooling fans and they said they had a 50,000 hour MTBF and that's what they provided. And so one of the engineers I was working with that was trying to, to choose which vendor to work with to, to put the fan in the server box that the, he was designing. And this company said 50,000 hours and this other company said 50,000 hours, but they were a little bit cheaper. And so he says, what do I do here? I can't, I don't have enough information to decide on their quote reliability. So we called both companies and asked them how they did this. And the, one of them said, well, we run lots of samples and we run them out for a long time. We have had fans running for 10 years and we track time to failure. We do a wibble because we know it's a wear out mechanisms of the bearings in the fans. Uh, but nobody ever asked us for the wibble. They asked us for MTBF, but we have the real data here. 
and there's a white paper somewhere down on our website. You know, and we went and found it, and they had all this good stuff on there. And then they even adjusted it to what back pressure we were using and uh, temperature and environmental considerations that would alter the shape of that uh, time to failure distribution. And we could tailor it to our decision. But when you ran that, just took all that information and pulled out an MTBF value, which you can do from any distribution, um, we got 50,000 hours for that. Now, the other company said, um, we always just say 50,000 hours because all of our competitors use 50,000 hours. We don't calculate it at all. <laughs> our products wear out. It has no meaning to what our products do. But if your customer asks for reliability, we give them MTBF and they don't call back, and they, but they buy products, it works. So when I work with vendors or with companies working with vendors to get information, I don't say ask for MTBF. Certainly not. I don't say ask for reliability numbers. I say, what's going to fail and when? And then how do you know? And nine times out of 10, you get a sales engineer that says, oh, our product never fails. Really? Why did you spend $800,000 on warranty expenses last year? Right? In some parts of the world, that's public knowledge, what the, the <laughs> warranty reporting is. And, and that usually sets them back and I get to go talk to somebody that really knows how their product works and by definition, how it doesn't work. And then I get real information. Yeah. The other thing I find with vendors is just to close on this chapter. Often in time, you buy equipment from vendors, you end up knowing more how the equipment works than they did. Uh, not all the time, but a lot of the time they design stuff and they sell it. And they don't have the opportunity to test it out in the field. So, um, they, so you know how it works. You probably have more data than they do. Yep. And that's why the beauty of working with vendors, good vendors, is to build a partnership with them so that you can educate them on what their asset is doing in the field and eventually help them build better systems, which then is kind of a good catch-22 situation, better products, better reliability. Yeah, very true. <clears throat> yeah, you're right, Fred. I mean, I have seen some vendors, I've worked with vendors that have given me liable information on their products and it's really just been just it's, it's a level of sophistication right and it's some people track it some people don't some people you know they just most people just want to know what's the average life and then that's, that's good right. enough yeah. just the last word on that sorry not to belabor the point you I, i'd come back to your question initially this gentleman who asked this question about what do i do with mtbf maybe he's he's data sometimes there's data you don't know about it's just about looking at the asset work and trying to find um, un, how would I say that? unconventional data that would explain something about the aging of the asset, right? So I, I was talking about cycle, you know, start stops of your car, right? So it's sitting down with the customer and looking at his operation and trying to find the data where nobody thought the data was, right? Yeah, that's a good point. It, you know, the other part of this is, uh, the question has the phrase bad MTBF. Well, my opinion is they're all bad. <laughs> just don't use it uh, and for a variety of reasons. But hopefully we answered that question so uh, that there's some examples out there in practice. Yeah, we could spend hours on this one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, if we, if we didn't answer it, just just fire it into the chat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, like what we've always typically done has been to use libel analysis as kind of our first cut or our first try at putting some life characteristics around. I mean, maybe Andre, do you want to just give us a quick introduction to libel? Like what is it and what are some of the parameters that we should be looking at? So the libel analysis is, uh, is a very handy uh, distribution. It is a, the libel in itself, it's a, it's a statistical distribution. Like, the, the log normal distribution, the normal distribution, the exponential distribution. There's probably thousands of distributions that have been defined out there, but the difference between them and the Weibull distribution for industry and mechanical system is extremely practical from a graphical standpoint and also from an output standpoint because First of all, you can make straight lines with it. So if you engineer, you like straight lines, you know, by doing some uh, modifications to the axes, uh, you, can, you can have a straight line and, and we like straight lines. Um, and then there's those parameters that define the distribution themselves, which are, you know, the shape parameter and the scale parameter. 
so they give you the the shape parameter gives you information on uh, on uh, if it's aging infant mortality and uh, or random failure so lots of information it can give you and tell you how how this asset is behaving and what action you should take just from looking at one parameter the other parameter would be kind of a characteristic life which uh, gives you a, an idea of uh, uh, on average how long this uh, this uh, this this equipment or component you're studying will will last being careful there again about the laws of averages so it it so it, there's so much information we can garner from the Weibull distribution, and also uh, it, it has it is now mainstream. Like when we talk about the bathtub curve itself, it's 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 a triple Weibull combination, right? There's three Weibull combinations in the infant mortality, random randomness, which is in essence an exponential distribution, and and also the aging uh, characteristics. Um, there are software out there that allow you to do what they call multi-population weibulls, where when you're looking at the um, at, uh, at a, the life cycle of an asset of a like characteristic of an asset, you can detect the uh, up to four failure modes out of it. So you know um, the, that uh, you know you can look at it. It won't tell you which failure modes they are. But it will tell you there's uh, evidence of uh, up to four failure modes. So it's interesting to know because once you know what the characteristics of the failure modes are and the life characteristics, you, you probably can, can do something in the field. Now, sometimes that a good thing is not always a good thing. And I'll finish on that on the Weibull distribution is you have to be careful that it's the Weibull distribution that you are defining or finding really fits the data. So it's not not just taking a Weibull distribution and throwing it at a bunch of data and saying, yeah, it works, let me go and do my uh, analysis and my decision-making process. So you have to be careful and do some tests uh, to, uh, to see if, it, you know, mathematically the specific Weibull distribution or the distribution itself is fitting the data because it could be a log normal distribution, it could be uh, something else. So, uh, but uh, in essence, the, the success of the Weibull distribution, it's, it's versatility, sorry, and uh, the amount of information it will subsequently provide to a reliability engineer and help people make good decisions. Yeah, there's a, I mean, I know you two are up in Edmonton, so I got it. One of the early times I worked with a client and they, they handed me just a pile of data on their system, an electronic system. And they said, uh, we don't really know what to do with this. And, and so we pulled up, put it on a Weibull plot. And, and as you're saying, Andre, I used the cumulative distribution plot, which has uh, adjusted scale so that if it fit the distribution, it'd be a nice straight line, right? And, and you can tell it when it's not that distribution because it has a curve in it or something like this. But this particular set of data went out for about 2000 hours. And then we call it a hockey stick. Right, I have a nice flat line like this, and then I have this, the the blade. On the CMRP, they call it a dog a dog leg. Dog leg? No, it's a hockey stick. Come on, guys, <laughs> it's a hockey stick. And and so they had this sharp increase, and they said, well, "What does that mean?" And he says, "Well, you probably have a second failure mechanism that is being hidden by something else up until two thousand hours." And I said, why don't we take some product from these early failures and some from the blade of the hockey stick and, and do a little failure analysis and start out what it is. And they came back within an hour and said, that steeper curve, which is means everything's gonna fail. If that keeps going, all of our product will fail before the warranty period. And what we should recall this, they found out that they had an op amp in their system that wore out at about 2,100 hours and, and completely wore out. Like 90% of them were destined to fail in the next 100 hours. And they had been using MTBF, right? And catching that change in the average was, was they would have, they already had the problem, a deep problem before they would have seen it. So one good thing to do, and it's not just reliability engineers, is anybody facing data is plot it. And if I've got time to failure data, I just reach for the Weibull curve because it's so informative, as Andre said. Um, the hard part is, is that 
Yeah, sometimes it's just not the right distribution. If I have a bunch of time to repair information, I know historically and from lots and lots of studies that the log normal distribution is way better at accurately describing that, that kind of data. But I still sit it there and look at it as a statistician going, well, what's the goodness of fit? Is this really appropriate? But I also try to find, uh, is it something physical or chemically happening that I can then help me pick the right distribution? Is there some first principles at, at play here? When I can do that, I'm good. And it really becomes more of a, um, a sleuthing game or a logic game, uh, especially when you have small amounts of data, right? Just getting it on a plot, even a non-parametric plot is often a great first step. And as you want to create a distribution, then it's regression analysis. And it's, it's not MX plus B anymore. It's, it gets more complicated because they're not, some of them are nonlinear and it's complicated. <laughs> but it, it, what I see the downside is, is that some people grab the software, throw their data and it, get a plot and then make million dollar decisions without really understanding that that plot actually is meaningless and without some experience and pressured in your assumptions and all those other pieces, um, a calculator can give you wrong numbers as simple as hitting the wrong key. The more sophisticated regression software and all those other things, they don't know from beans what that number 68 means in your data set. You need to feed it the appropriate information so that you can interpret it correctly. And I think that's the job of an, an engineering is to understand your CAD system, understand your simulation system, understand your data analysis. And so the downside of these tools is that, yeah, you get a number real quick. If you don't understand it, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Fred. And that's that's one thing that I think people still misunderstand like, like Andre and I have been crunching through a lot of these, these data sets and the majority of the time is, is either one is sifting through the work order comments to try to figure out which failure mode or at least which component failed out of the, the system. And then the second part of it is actually like diving into these results and going, does this make sense? Does it fit? Does it pass the sniff test, if you will? Well, and I guess another point on here is that uh, Weibull analysis works best when it's a common, when it's a single failure mechanism, not a failure mode, but a mechanism. So if I have an oxidation process of this particular metal and it's leading to failures, that's going to be, it's probably going to fit a Weibull distribution beautifully. But if I have 15 different competing failure mechanisms, I'll get this hockey stick approach and mask you know, I only see two failure mechanisms, the other two will fall, will be not visible. It still gives you an aggregate over the over thing. It's a way to start looking for information, but for repairable systems in particular, Weibull's not really suited or, or log normal, any of these other distributions. It's go to a mean cumulative function, go to non-parametric methods or use uh, um, uh, techniques that are appropriate to do recurrent data which Weibull and LogNormal aren't really suited for. But once you figure out, oh, our recurrent data is always failing because of bearing wear out, well then use the bearing data to do a Weibull analysis and, and get more information about it. Yeah. So breaking it down into some failure mode stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so sometimes uh, they've also, we don't use it typically in our industries. Uh, there's a third parameter in the Weibull uh, distribution, which is called uh, no failure zone, where uh, it's used in uh, more in warranty-like studies where you're looking at a, a part of the life of the asset where it's very unlikely or actually not likely to fail at all. And so this, this takes into account this, the fact that, you know, if you, if you manufacture stuff and you leave it on a shelf, for a period of time where it won't fail, right? It's on a shelf. So yeah. that's where more sophisticated Weibull analysis goes in and looks at this third parameter. But typically we don't use it because uh, in our industry, like we work in pipelines or refineries or moving industries, we buy stuff, we operate it from day one. So it doesn't sit on the shelf uh, unless it's a spare part, but we don't go into that. It's, it's one of the, I was actually in a, in a, uh, an expert witness in a legal case. And uh -oh. one of the, what did you do, Fred? Uh, yeah, no, I, I was, I was the expert witness. I wasn't the source of the problem, but they showed me a set of data. And, uh, one of the parties, uh, 
did a three parameter Weibull to it because it, it showed that overall failure rate was to their favor. And, and I looked at it and it, you know, when you mentioned sniff tests, it reminded me of this thing because they had a negative location parameter. So their products had a no failure zone three months before the product was manufactured. That sounds good to me. <laughs> right. And, and it just happened to fit this thing. And so they, you know, they were claiming that it's the failure free zone. And I says, well, how is it possible to start a failure free zone when you haven't created the product yet? And so the lawyer I was working with was like, I would have never seen that. <laughs> that just kind of throws out this analysis because it's, it's not physically possible to not fail if it's not made yet. You know, it has to yeah. be have the opportunity to fail. And the three parameter is great if you, like you said, Andre, it's a, I'm manufacturing it and it goes on a boat for two months and it takes an average of two to three months to actually be put in service. And then that helps the rest of the data set be more accurate at describing the time to failure pattern. Um, but it has to have a, some phenomena or, 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 uh, or reason why that third parameter makes sense it's not appropriate to go to these software packages and say, I'm going to try every distribution until I get the answer I want. Mm -hmm. That's not appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> I had a boss that tried to do that. You can do that in that. Excel like, too. No. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so so I, I think I'd like to add to this is what, what Fred and I were talking about is you, when you do reliability engineering studies, there's, you have to be able to explain what you see practically, right? Uh, throwing a distribution at a bunch of data. Yes, it will give you an answer, but it might not be correct. You need to step back and look at the results you got and say, wow, does that really make sense? Do I have a failure-free period that started before the product? How is that possible? Then that means that the, the distribution doesn't work or there's a problem with your data. So you always be on your tools and checking your results and seeing if it's practical and it makes sense. Yeah, well said. And it, I mean, it's something that we do all the time, right, Andre? Like, yeah. we, we never, basically never put out the first result we get. I mean, it's, 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 I don't even think it's happened once so far. Yeah. Right, you just look at it and if it doesn't make sense, you can't put it out because then it's your reputation, which is at stake, right? <laughs> you end up in front of lawyers after that. That's right. And then <laughs> Fred, Fred's coming in to testify against us. <laughs> Well, last question I got for you guys before we get into plugs. I just wanted any, like any overall tips, like if someone's out there, they're kind of new to either MTBF or Weibull or any reliability math stuff, like where should they start or, you know, what's a, what's a tip that you have for them? Fred, maybe you can start us off. Think through the analysis. What are you trying to accomplish? And if you know, what question are you trying to answer? Who's going to make decision based on this information? What information do they really need in order to make an appropriate decision? And, and then I would add a second one is the challenge the assumptions. You know, it's, it's wonderful when, when your, your data is normally distributed or Weibull has a Weibull distribution pattern to it. But I've run in it way too many times where somebody says, well, we're going to try to simplify our calculations. So we're going to assume everything's exponential. It makes the calculations just dirt simple. Also lacking any useful information by and large. So be careful of what assumptions you're making, right? And, uh, and challenge those and, and show evidence that that assumption is valid and as you go through the analysis with keeping in mind, what's the objective? What are you trying to accomplish this? Not every data analysis is a full-fledged PhD study thesis document, right? But sometimes it's a million dollar question, so you better get it right. So make sure you do due diligence on it. Um, yeah, I, I, I'll stick with those two. I'm sure I could come up with a few more here. <laughs> Andre, how about you? I would say, well, dangerous, the software. Be careful, people just, Go out there, buy software, and hoping <laughs> that the software will fix all the problems. You, you, the analogy I use, you have to know how the engine works under the bonnet or the, the hood. Uh, you, you have to know what the mechanics, what the calculations are happening underneath, so you have to have a fair idea, otherwise you're going you're gonna to make mistakes. And, and the, the other thing would be more, uh, um, you know, if you're an engineer or reliability engineer or 
budding reliability engineer. I, I think it lines up with what Fred said. When you get an answer to uh, some to a study or, or an output, go check it out in the field. Talk to a technician and ask him a question, Neil. Because those guys work with the with the assets, they work very closely with the assets. Sometimes they have a good idea of what the number should be. They don't. They cannot get to the number and analytically because they don't have time or the. It's not their job function. But just work closely with the field and say, does this number sound right to you? Roughly, does this number sound right? This this is how many failures we can expect at the end of uh, the next year. Um, so. And the third thing is education, right? So you yourself as a reliability engineer, educate yourself. There's lots of blogs out there, conferences, there's Fred out there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, you ask the question uh, and uh, learn as you go along, learn the tricks, learn the pitfalls. And uh, so, uh, and it's a lifelong journey to become an expert in the field and know exactly what you're doing. Love it. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more with, you know, talking to your SMEs or your shop floor or your mechanics. Like for me, that's, that's really, they know, like they flat out know, they, they probably won't describe it to you in a libel characteristic way, but they'll know if it's wear out, they'll know if it's installation, they'll know basically how long it's going to last. Like it'll be a, you know, a thumb in the air type of type of analysis, but they'll have an idea. And I, I think starting there is always going to be good for us as reliability people. I think if you were to put a chain of command in reliability engineering, it would be a technician in the field, a maintenance engineer who's kind of working with those guys and being the liaison between the technicians and the reliability engineer. And then there'll be the boardroom. Because at the end of the day, the reliability engineer does strategic studies, comes up with the numbers, and those numbers often end up in the boardroom where people make decisions. So that's kind of the structure I see towards uh, making those uh, the, this good decision process. Absolutely. Andre, do you have anything to plug? Like people listening, where can they find you? Or they can, you can find me in LinkedIn. I'm, I'm, my name is Andre Michel Ferrari. And I love answering questions. I'm sure everybody on this panel, uh, Fred, yourself, we love answering questions. We love challenges. We, you throw a bunch of data at us, even though it's dirty, we'll try and do something with it. So I'm always open to, uh, you know, questions about, you know, training, about, uh, you know, how to become a reliability engineer, what, and, uh, and also to answer technical questions. Absolutely. Fred, how about yourself? Well, I, I've, you mentioned the website early on, um, which is, I appreciate that, but at sendoreliability.com, we have webinars, po- podcasts at reliability.fm is the podcast network, uh, which Rob's is a part of. Uh, on the Sendo, we got uh, your articles that come out uh, pretty much every Monday. Every and Monday. I haven't every missed Monday. one yet. <laughs> right. Um, and there's... Uh, on the av- roughly four or five to 10 articles per week on ranging from tu- tutorials and techniques to essays to uh, work performance and job performance type things to risk management, safety, a range of topics that are of general interest to folks. And then, um, but it also has, unlike, unlike other businesses or sites, we also promote and advertise basically or make, hopefully help make you aware of all the resources that are out there. Ascendo can't possibly provide all the training classes and all the topics and webinars and all the podcasts. So we have resources listing as many as we can possibly find. And I think in the month of June, we send out a, 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 we have a webinar calendar and we scout, we take a look at about 25 to 30 different sources of relevant webinars for the reliability community. And then we had, more than 50 events for just the month of June, of which Ascendo only is doing three. Or I'm four. doing four, I think. <laughs> yeah, but, right. And, and, but there, I need to get it, figure out where that schedule is and topics so that I can get it in the monthly re, re, uh, rundown of those things. So that's why yours aren't in there very often because I don't know about them. And uh, I'm not that far ahead, Fred. <laughs> I know. That's what I thought. And, and I, your format's great. And it gives us the chance to ch- talk live, talk at the water cooler, which we don't get a chance to do these days as much. So I, I your, your stuff's 
is a whole different format and well deserved or needed. And so I, I think it's out there. But anyway, I'm at Ascendo. Uh, you can find us through ascendoreliability.com. You can leave comments and questions. I agree with Andre. I, I love getting questions. I probably answer I don't know, three, four different questions from people every day through LinkedIn or direct wow. email or through the site. And everything from where do I find a good reference to or, hey, I just got unemployed. Where do I go? Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of good answers to that one. Um, sometimes I'm getting recruiters calling saying, hey, I need a good candidate. I like answering those. Um, but it's sometimes it's here's, you know, a data set. And I'm a statistician at heart. So, uh, yeah, data is always fun. <laughs> yeah, every once in a while, I'll get the recruiter coming by asking for people and that type of stuff. So yeah, definitely if you're, well, I know Fred, you you have a job postings area on Ascendo, so people can check that out as well. Yeah, and it, it's really just a consolidation of, I think, three or four different uh, boards that are out there. And um, they're just automated. I just, you know, scanning them or they're um, streaming onto the site. But it, if it helps you get a sense of what's out there and what's going on, and you can follow through with those leads individually. Um, on occasion, I get you know notice of, hey, Fred, do you know somebody that'd be a good candidate here? And so I, I hear about those occasionally, not so much in the last couple of months. Um, and I try to put those out on LinkedIn um, or directly if they're looking for a very specific person or talent. Yeah, no, it's it's always great to have you, Fred. Always great to have, well, great to have you for the first time, Andre, but we'll definitely have to have you Pleasure. back on. It was my first podcast and uh, I was a little bit uh, um, worried. Uh, I usually do lots of presentations, but uh, it was a great experience. I mean, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for attending and the great questions you asked us. <laughs> we, we didn't scare you off yet, so. Oh, no, no, no. You actually got me hooked, maybe. <laughs> yeah and for everyone listening obviously my plugs to find me follow rob's reliability project on your favorite podcast platform if you go to my website robsreliability.com you can sign up for the email list and then you'll get the blog that's also posted on ascendoreliability.com but you'll get it emailed it to you every monday morning Follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn for my daily content, the graphics, the tips of the day, the memes, all of that stuff is there every day. And yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming out. And also, I suppose if you're listening to this live Friday afternoon, we're having a reliability happy hour. Fred was mentioning that he misses the beers. So we're having that on Friday afternoon. Um, I won't be there this week, but Bob Latino will be hosting for me. So he'll be filling in and yeah, that'll be fun. So yeah, thanks for joining us today and we'll be, we'll be closing it out. Okay. <laughs>